Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more. How can we branch out and figure something out? Subscribe if you haven't. YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, leave a review. All those things help out. On this episode here, we have an author, but also a barrister, the author of The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, Jamie Suskind, joins on the show. Jamie, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. Now, first, where are you coming from at this time? I'm in London, England. Amen. Very cool. So I'm in Los Angeles. I love the international nature of the current moment in all connections. Now, your book is about the connection between the technologies that are currently going on and then also the law and the politics connected to it on the side which is a nice interconnection. I, I know you uh, bring up the interconnection point of those two. Before we get into that, you are a barrister and or attorney. In our description, you have held fellowships at Cambridge and Harvard University and at the Berggruen Institute. Tell me how you got into this category of interest. Was it always to be this way? Have you left out other categories that just were not for you? I don't know if it was always to be this way. I suppose... I first started thinking about writing about the intersection of political philosophy and technology when I was an undergrad at university. And it struck me as strange then that the textbooks and the set texts that we were using at Oxford were obviously, you know, many of them canonical modern texts from the 70s and 80s and 90s and noughties. But none of them seem to be reckoning with the great transformations that were taking place around us. So even at that stage, it was quite clear to me and my contemporaries that the internet was transforming the way that we live together. The smartphones were about to revolutionize uh, communication and political communication and organization. And none of this was really to be found in our textbooks. And so I had the germ of an idea when I was 18, 19, that this is something that I would like to write about. And I remember writing about it in my exams and thinking there's so much more I'd like to learn. There's so much more I'd like to say. So in my twenties, while establishing a practice in law, I started to look into this stuff for myself. Um, I took some time to go to Harvard and uh, spend time at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society there, where I did a lot of the research and writing. And the first book I wrote, Future Politics came out in 2018. That was a kind of diagnostic book, basically asking what's the, what's the future for freedom, power, democ democracy, and justice? Um, how will those words change in meaning as the century goes on? And this new book is more um, prescriptive. It's about what we should do, uh, which was in many ways a kind of natural um, sequel to the first. I should say, I do come from a family of, of writers uh, so I guess that gave me the sense that it was possible. If you know other human beings who have done it, uh, you begin to wonder if you can do it yourself. And that was a privilege to begin with. Um, so that helped too. It's nice to have people in the background behind you in a similar way or some sort of force that helps propel you so that you're a few steps beyond where you would have been. And then if you see it that close, you think, okay, no problem. There's just some steps to do it. But if it's far away, you don't think there's just some steps to doing it. You think this might be out of my reach and then you don't reach. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, particularly with something like writing a book. Um, I'm mindful that most people don't know someone who's written a book, but the truth is lots of people have. It's possible. It's a great thing to try to do if you have something to say at book length form. And I learned that from my family, among others. I always see it as a big deal. I know that very few people put in the effort to, it's like a combination of thoughts in one package to make a book. And then if you see the notes at the end of the book, such as your book, there's no small amount of effort to come up with that. So I always look at it as a real representation of uh, effort in one category. That's very cool. Now, I like your book because it's spread into a lot of uh, little sections. I always look at the subsections and whatnot of books, and you have uh, 10 chapters or parts, and then each one has multiple little parts, which is good, because then you can break it down into all the little pieces. That's a nice feature when a book is like that. I thought that was cool. Who are the... Who should we be looking at as the figures or the powerhouses that are to be regulated or managed moving forward? Well, the book is about how we should regulate and govern almost all forms of technology. So I look at algorithms and data use, I look at robotics and artificial intelligence, I look at social media platforms. Um, I look at all of the stuff that's in the news and that's interesting us just now. And while the size of certain tech companies is obviously something that has attracted a lot of attention, the book isn't really about, or at least just about big companies. It's about a society which is filled with technologies that exert power, even if the people who own and control those technologies aren't always big companies. What do I mean when I say the technologies exert power? Well, every technology contains rules coded into it, and we have to follow those rules when we use those technologies. So, you know, on Twitter, you literally can't send a tweet if it's more than 280 characters. Uh, imagine driving in a self-driving car, which refused to go over the speed limit. People write code, also write rules. Uh, the people who, you know, for instance, who design and engineer the algorithms that allocate things like mortgages and loans and other social benefits like jobs, th their rules that they code into their systems, they affect all of us. And we don't have a choice about whether to follow them or not when we interact with them. And I say that that ability to write rules is a form of power. Uh, software engineers are becoming social engineers of a sort. Technologies also have a kind of power because they can, particularly on the social media front, they can regulate and shape our perception of the world, our perception of each other, the nature of our democratic deliberation. The great theatres of online debate increasingly play a very important role in determining what kind of politics we have. And finally, technologies gather data about us. They watch us. And that enables those who own and control them to... Um, I don't want to overstate it, but you can be influenced. Occasionally you can be manipulated, but also just knowing that you're being watched often will cause us to change our behavior. And so I look at the combination of all of these factors and I say that we've got this new and strange form of power rising in the world and it is rising, it's growing. Uh, so alongside the market, the invisible hand of the market or the great clunking fist of the state, you've got technology and the code that is written into it as a kind of potent social force. That's nowhere to be found in many of our political and legal 
textbooks and our legal system, our regulatory system is still playing catch up with it. So it's not just another book about saying, you know, look how big Google and Apple have got. It's about looking at the socio-technical system as a whole, sorry to use a pretentious term, uh, and saying what needs to be done here to preserve freedom and preserve democracy. I once came up with these lyrics where I said, they does the new oil Rockefeller would get jealous if he had some zeal, then Google's overzealous. This was like 10, 15 years ago I wrote these lyrics. Uh, data is mentioned in your content. Uh, you have a section, data's dominion. Are we currently still in the data is so relevant as a um, form of uh, power control? Are we at a step beyond that? Or what can we be looking at to manage the just huge amount of data that is currently coming out every second? Well, look, it, it kind of depends where you are in the world. So if you're in Europe, there are already quite significant protections about what can be done with data that is lawfully gathered about you. And in certain American states, there are similar protections, California being a slightly watered down example. But the United States remains, I believe, the only advanced democracy where there is no federal overarching rules about what private companies can and cannot do with data generally there are specific rules relating to specific sectors there is no omnibus federal legislation in the us dealing with it and what that means is that once your data has been gathered it is quite often repackaged and sold and combined with the data of others um because Contrary to popular myth, what's really useful about our data isn't really what it tells us, tells people about us particularly. Most people aren't interested in Jamie or Armin, but they are interested in Jamie and Armin as, as categories. People like Jamie, people with Jamie's attributes, people like Armin, people with Armin's attributes. And once you build machine learning systems that detect patterns about people like us, they can add commercial value so they can enable companies to sell us stuff, but they can also have kind of predictive and surveillance value to authorities, be they public or private. And I do think that lends those who trade and sort that data a kind of power. I think the power to watch and understand others at a very deep level uh, is a significant one. And it's not one that you can negate just by explaining to people how much data is gathered about them, because basically that's really difficult to conceptualize and understand. But even if we did, it would make us even more, I think if we truly knew how much data was out there about us, it would make us in a sense less free. We'd be frightened to do anything seen as sh sinful or shameful or wrong. And therefore I do consider data and power to be very closely related. I noticed in a few of your talks that I checked out the theme of the different views, the, let's say, United States and then Europe, and then let's say China, for example, in relation to this, and that now we have a digital, it's a connected world, if you will. Does one have to lead the pack in a way because the internet is not really a differentiating element? They all need to connect pretty much for trade and all to work out. Does one end up becoming a larger framework like the European one where more people are protected and no one is really left out? Well, 
I think a lot of people imagine and would like to see a sort of global government of Euro of internet and AI regulation. I'm aware that that's not something that everyone is attracted to, but it is quite often said that it would be desirable to have kind of global rules about what is and isn't kosher when we're using these technologies. Um, I'm less convinced about that. I'm less convinced about it, firstly, for practical reasons. I think it is very unlikely that the world would be able to agree on such things. Um, I think we'd be waiting a very long time, which is why a cynic might say that the tech companies are so in favor of it. Uh, I'm not sure about it from a moral perspective either. It's not clear to me why people in America should be judged, you know, when they use social media, should have to subscribe to French or German norms about free speech or vice versa. Why should French or German people um, live under norms related to the First Amendment, which is not their constitutional tradition? Thirdly, I think there is a fair amount we can do at a national level, you know, not perfect, just in the same way that tax isn't perfect at a national level, uh, but we still try to tax companies, we don't just not do it. But there's certainly going to be a benefit, I believe, in the in the major regulatory powerhouses of the world. And that's basically, in the democratic world, it's basically the EU and the US. Where they go, others will largely follow. It's a bit like when California changed its uh, standards for emissions relating to automobiles that didn't just affect people in California. It meant that German car makers who were trying to sell into California would create cars that were compliant with those standards. And I think if you have a powerful enough position, and the US and the EU certainly do, uh, then regulatory decisions that they make will affect the rest of the world as well. This is a good point about the interlinked nature. It's not really easy for one element to alter and then all the other entities not adjust to that because uh, business wants to be business. And so there'll be some sort of link there. Now, going back to programming and all the software that is being put out and apps and services, uh, you mentioned morality. Is there... What kinds of decisions are currently being made in such companies that are affecting the moral base of people or how they uh, go about their day? Can you give us some examples in that category? Yeah. So take three common words we use in politics, freedom, democracy, and justice. Freedom. Increasingly, social media platforms, for instance, make decisions about what we can and can't or should and shouldn't do or say. So for instance, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, Facebook would take down groups which were being used to organize protests against lockdowns and quarantines. No law required Facebook to do that. No law prevented Facebook from doing it. Many of us would have welcomed it. The point is that Facebook was doing something which actually quite profoundly affected the ability of certain groups to organize and protest, whether we agree with them or not. That to me is a political and not a commercial decision. Likewise, still in the, in the world of freedom, uh, social media platforms make decisions about what we can and cannot say on the internet. Um, Instagram, for instance, you know, 
you and I, if we wanted to, could post images of our nipples, but if we were women, we couldn't. Uh, and perhaps we could if we were women, if we, if we put photographs of male nipples superimposed onto our female ones. That again is a line that has been drawn in the sand by Instagram about what is and isn't acceptable expression. I hope I'm your first guest, by the way, to use the word nipples in an interview. Um, I think you are. Excellent. That's freedom. So just a couple of examples. Justice. Algorithms are increasingly used to move things around society uh, and to allocate things that are of value. Algorithms which determine our access to credit and mortgages, to um, insurance, to housing, to sentencing if they're used in the justice system, to jobs if they're used in recruitment. The decisions that are and values that are coded into these systems affect the distribution of goods in society, right? So they affect who gets what, who does well and who doesn't, whether certain disadvantaged groups stay disadvantaged or become more disadvantaged. So their algorithms touch directly on questions of justice. And finally, democracy, more and more political communication, important political communication, you know, the very stuff of democracy, the deliberative process, more and more of that takes place in the great theatres of digital debate. And those theatres are controlled by ringmasters who say what can and cannot be said, who may and may not say it, who can speak to whom, who can see whom, who is up and down, what, import, what issues are important and what aren't. And, you know, I'm not being, in a sense, conspiratorial about it. A lot of the time, the decisions that are made by these companies are well-meaning and not, in a sense, political, or at least not trying to be party political. The, the simple point I'm making is if you control a large search engine or a large social media platform, you're likely to have a significant impact on the democratic deliberation that takes place within a country. Um, Facebook once did a test a few years ago where they, um, <laughs> and I can't remember the exact details of it, but they basically told there was a vote going on in, in a particular state and they and one group of people were shown a particular banner and one group weren't and the banner said something like i voted have you essentially a small inducement to voting and the people who saw that banner were just slightly i think a few percentage points more likely to vote than the people who didn't but of course a few percentage points can be tens or hundreds of thousands of votes uh, in a given election enough to win or lose many elections and uh, that just showed the kind of, if platforms wanted to, the kind of conscious decisions they could make to affect democratic processes. But often what they do is unconscious. So Jack Dorsey, when he was head of Twitter, came before Congress and explained that because of some problem with the algorithm, Twitter had been unfairly filtering hundreds of thousands of people, including some members of Congress during a period of uh, elections. And that was pretty significant. You know, a lot of people felt that they had been hard done by by the platform. So freedom, justice, democracy, to me, these words are intimately tied up with digital technologies. They can't be separated. One thing you just reminded me of was how impactful little items can be. They had this one psychological study where if you, they had a person holding a cold water or they gave them a cold water versus a hot water, before asking them something 30 minutes later and the percentage of people 
against or supporting it was highly swayed with like a statistical significance just from that item. And that's one small detail. So yes, then if there's something much more substantial with like the items that are being seen repeatedly or the direction something is looked at, uh, yeah, can sway it things just don't substantially. Oh, and that's the other thing I was going to mention yet. Yeah, the value of that, you're right. Whenever you cannot talk about something or the way that something is framed, even before the discussion seems to be even more substantial than most, uh, a lot of discussions, because by that point, it's already decided we're, we're leaving this out. This is okay. And then, okay, now you can work with this. And the audience knows that because they keep in mind reality is all the variables. But then when it's limited to a smarter, smaller selection of variables, there's always something about it that feels uh, constrained. And then it makes you think of which power figures or systems in place cause that, if you will. Yes. It comes to mind. Now, on the idea of regulation, are, is it a uh, not enough regulated market at this time such that the market is not able to do it on its own? to adjust. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. I want to, I want to begin by challenging the idea of regulated versus deregulated, because I think it is an unhelpful frame through which to analyze these questions. It's unhelpful because all markets are regulated. Indeed, markets are the construction of laws. The things that are required to have to have markets, which don't exist in nature are things like Contract laws, property laws, corporate laws, uh, the law of tort, a functioning court system. Unless you have these things in place, you can't have a functioning and sophistic sophisticated market. And so when we talk about deregulation, no one who argues for deregulation is saying, well, let's get rid of the laws that protect corporations or the laws that uh, enshrine property rights and intellectual property rights. They're saying, let's get rid of a particular type of law, uh, which is not those laws. And I think that that use of language is unhelpful because it makes us forget that actually it's about what kind of laws are best, not whether we need more or less law. So that's my first kind of politician's answer is that I'm going to challenge the way the question's framed. But by and large, you know, the answer, your, your second question, you know, can we rely on the market? mechanism alone to regulate the behavior of people within it. No, we can't. Uh, and that to me is unsurprising. It's not how we regulate other industries of social importance. We don't just leave doctors and lawyers to act solely according to market mechanisms. We don't leave the nuclear industry, the engineering or the aviation in industry. We say that the market mechanism is useful because it can be an explosive source of innovation, but that it can also encourage bad behavior uh, and undesirable behavior. And the same is true in tech of any other industry. Now, after your introduction in the book, you go into four principles that are the foundations of the digital republic, which we would be coming into. Uh, can you go into some of the principles and how we would follow them? Yeah, who would be the ones following them? Absolutely. So how would they what you're, <laughs> what you're talking about is my attempt in the book to say, well, okay, if, 
if the current way that we govern technology is a bit haphazard, a bit unprincipled, or a bit too conditioned by sort of market thinking, what would be a useful alternative? And so uh, I come up with a set of principles in the book. I won't go through all of them, but the, the basic idea is this. Firstly, when we regulate, we should be regulating in order to reduce unaccountable power. So the problem that we're trying to solve here is not really that the tech industry or people who work and design and own technologies have power. I think that's unavoidable, but that the power is unaccountable. It can be exercised without regards to the well-being or sufficient regards to the well-being and interests of society. And so the purpose of regulation is to reduce unaccountable power. Secondly, the purpose of regulation is to make sure that digital technologies are not uh, alien to or inconsistent with the kind of moral values and norms of a given society, even a pluralist society where people don't agree on everything. And that harks back a little bit to what I was saying earlier, like why should someone in France or Germany be governed according to First Amendment speech norms? People should be able to have a say or at least have reflected their fundamental interests and beliefs, which differ from country to country in the regulation of digital technology. But there's also a third important principle, I think it's actually the fourth one in the book, uh, which is what I call the parsimony principle. This is the idea that when we're regulating, we've got to make sure we don't give too much power to the government. Uh, and we've also got to regulate the government itself. We've got to place serious limits on what people in political power can do with digital technologies, because as well as making companies more powerful, they also make governments more powerful. So the purpose of digital republicanism, my philosophy, that's small r republicanism, not, not the kind of republicanism of the Republican Party. Um, the purpose of it is to reduce unaccountable power, whether that is in the private sector or the public sector. To reduce unaccountable power, what might be some ways to pinpoint that? Is it waiting uh, until people identify a section where, oh, wait a minute, this is uh, left out, we need to adjust it, or is there a way to target it before problems arise? Both. So it's partly about having a fence at the top of the cliff and far partly about having an ambulance at the bottom. How do you reduce unaccountable power? You give people, you give systems transparency. You subject them to uh, regimes of certification and licensing. You um, disperse and break up power in extreme cases. You uh, introduce systems of appeal and challenge, new rights and legal standards. There are all kinds of ways of holding power to account and, uh, you know, there's no one size fits all solution. What's right for someone whose business has been thrown off a social media platform, they might, for instance, want some kind of right of appeal somewhere. Um, it's going to be different from someone whose uh, self-driving car has driven into a wall. They might want some kind of public inquiry or some kind of new regulation or standard that affects all self-driving cars. So there is no one size fits all solution. The general principle, though, is that we're trying to reduce unaccountable power. That's a great point. Both sides, offense and defense. On the topic, actually, I thought about this with self-driving cars. Is it likely to end up that there is like uh, three or four different 
main ways that they are being run in each, uh, like the U.S., the Europe, and China, where some of the moral and ethical decisions for the edge cases are run differently, matching that country's values? The answer to that is yes. Uh, but th there, there are some prior questions, I think, that we have to ask. I mean, this has become a bit of a sort of cliche topic in artificial intelligence studies, but I think it's actually quite an important one. The problem you're sort of getting at is, you know, you've got a self-driving car driving down the motorway and you know, a little old lady walks into the middle of the road. What's the car going to do? Is it going to kill the lady or is it going to swerve and kill the trucker next door and kill the passenger as well? Um, it's an ethical decision. There's no obvious right answer to it. Uh, there are a number of answers that you might give such a system. You might say the system should do what other previous humans would have done in that situation. That's very much a machine learning mentality. It should just learn from the data and copy. Or you might say that the system should adhere to the belief that every, that two lives, saving two lives is better than one. Uh, or you might program it to adhere to the belief that a system should never deviate in a way that is likely to take life. Taking life as a kind of accident is different from taking life as a kind of deviation. You might have it engineered according to Christian principles, feminist principles. Your audio has gone off. Sorry, uh, I think in my enthusiasm, I hit okay. the mute button. Um, where did Sorry, I get up after to? After feminist principles. After feminist principles. So feminist you might principles have a world principles? Which, you know, Mercedes and BMW and Audi have different moral frameworks. And when you buy a car, you're also buying the moral framework. These are all different ways of doing it. My preference would be with big moral questions like that is to have a kind of nationally or, or or community agreed set of standards which and this is the principle we were talking about a moment ago which reflect the norms the considered norms of the community there won't always be 100 percent agreements on it in the same way that there isn't 100 percent agreement on lots of contentious political issues but it does strike me that that's the kind of thing that should be decided by the citizenry rather than by private companies One thing that comes to mind is, are there any, what would be a large counter view to what you are saying here? Are there any people that come to mind automatically that are, um, they would not agree with what you're referring to and would say an alternative is the way to go? Well, the, the main alternative is the system we have just now. And that system has a lot of benefits and it has a lot of supporters. It is a system in which digital technology is largely left to develop according to the rules and norms of the market and the incentives of the market. In favor, you could say that it encourages a kind of explosive innovation. Against, you might say that it's corrosive of freedom and democracy and justice. Because if you just organize society according to market norms, you shouldn't be surprised when the common good gets forgotten. But, you know, to answer your question, is there an obvious alternative? Yes, the alternative that is currently the dominant paradigm and which many people benefit enormously from. 
I once spoke with the ethics expert, Dr. Susan Liao-Tao here, who has written a lot about ethics in technology, but also in workplaces and different locations. And uh, you have mentioned ethics in your book. What are some ethical considerations or some of the largest ones that are currently being left out with regards to uh, technology and democracy? What are we missing? Well, the problem that I identify in the book isn't with specific ethical principles, but with the idea of ethics itself, insofar as uh, ethics is seen as a kind of self-regulation. So technology companies produce codes of ethics, you know, which say we're committed to accountability, we're committed to privacy, we're committed to transparency, basically buzzwords. The, the problem with all of these is that it's very easy to say that you're committed to these things, but, but what do you do when your commitment to those things rubs up against the need or desire to make money? And that's the real test of a business. And frankly, it is uncommon and unusual for a business to pursue a long-term ethical strategy in tech that is also uh, potentially not the most uh, explosive way of producing growth, particularly in the early years, where usually as a result of the investment structure, there is an, an enormous incentive to grow rather than to do anything else. So it's all very well having charters of ethics, you know, AI ethics and the like, but I'm not convinced they've radically improved things. And I think in many ways they might be counterproductive. So what I say is that we need to move from talking about the ethics of AI and the ethics of, of technology to politics and law. And questions of ethics should instead be questions of compliance. The idea that you don't do the right thing out of charity or goodwill, you do it because some legal or regulatory requirement compels you to do it. That's actually how we regulate most sectors. The tech sector is unusual in the sense that people seem to think it's right to kind of lay down for them to choose their own ethical principles and then for them to mark their own homework when it comes to whether those ethical principles are being met. Right. Is it to be left to rules placed on such companies or organizations, or is there anything that the collective public can also contribute to this that comes to mind or should it not be thought of that way because it's managed like a top down? Well, what I would like to see is uh, an engaged citizenry that is more involved in politics than it is just now. So one of the things that I write about in the book is that, you know, our conception of democracy has become kind of anemic, um, maybe less so in the US actually, but in a lot of countries, it's, it's really just about voting. It's assumed that you have a preset set of views and that you have to tot up how many people agree with you and how many people don't and the people who have the most win. Republican democracy, I stress in the sense that I use the word Republican, the ancient political theory of Republicanism rather than the Republican Party. The Republican theory of democracy says that actually deliberation and participation in good faith as citizens is an important part of democracy. It's it's, it's as important as voting. And 
One mechanism that I identify in the book for getting people more involved in politics and in decisions about tech is using so-called deliberative mini-publics. This is the idea that a bit like a jury, you convene a panel of between five and 500 people for a certain period of time, so between a weekend and six months, to, and you create ideal deliberative conditions, you know, conditions under which people can be their best in considering ideas and debating them with each other, to come up with proposals and ideas. And the early research suggests, you know, places like Ireland, where such processes were used in relation to the thorny question of abortion rights there. Um, the initial experiments suggest that actually under those conditions, people deliberate well and that other people are happy and content to go along with what they come up with in the same way that society entrusts juries to make decisions about individual cases and, and allows them to go along with it. This is a very old type of democracy. Um, it stretches all the way back to Athens, to ancient Athens. And I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Some of the big political questions relating to tech, I think, would benefit from having the deliberative scrutiny of civic-minded people rather than just being left to lawyers and politicians and business executives. I had recently spoken with uh, citizens, others, John Alexander and Ariane Conrad, and it related with what you had mentioned about the difference between being a citizen versus being a consumer or just taking things in. Are there any places on the planet right now where there is more societal connectivity to what's happening, where application is constantly being brought up by the people to their rules and such? Taiwan is always cited as a good example. Um, there, they, they also use technology in quite interesting ways to canvas the opinions of the people. But yes, the, the, the V Taiwan system there has been used to consider a number of tricky, divisive political issues, many of them relating to tech. Um, and I think it's something we could all learn from. But there have been citizens panels and citizens juries and citizens assemblies convened all around the world, just in very small scale. So there have been some in America and Belgium in the UK, and most of them do really well when they get the chance. Uh, but there is no country that is systematically incorporating them as part of its kind of constitutional framework. I see a theme there that there's a disconnect between what um, certain organizations or power structures have acquired in recent times and their ability to do certain things without being checked. And then the regular folks that have uh, separated a bit from what's happening there. It's kind of like farming where the farming happens over there and we eat it over here and there's a distance. Does this gap appear to be increasing at the current moment? Is it stable? Is it improving? How would you describe that? I think it's probably increasing. Not like farming in the sense that it's like physically remote because, although maybe it is in that sense as well. I mean, the truth is we are, we are surrounded increasingly by extremely complex technologies whose inner workings we couldn't begin to understand. And to a certain extent, we're going to have to live with that. Not all of us are going to understand how an iPhone works or how an algorithm actually works. But what I think we could do better at is interrogating the kind of moral and political values that are inevitably 
encoded in such technologies. I think the problem just now is that we treat a lot of tech as consumers rather than citizens. We don't, we look at it from a commercial perspective rather than, a rather than with our political eyes on, you know, the, the skeptical scrut scrutiny that we apply to politicians. We don't apply that to digital technologies. And so, yes, I think it's given them a fair amount of space. And there is a degree of secrecy, obviously, involved as well, which uh, makes it hard for the rest of us to understand what is being done to us. That makes sense. I used to once in a while have thoughts of what's happening in the Bay Area, maybe five years ago, or some coding that's happening in the background. I'm not sure exactly. But uh, in the category of people, are there any uh, people that have, guided or influenced your views, any key individuals that you have modeled your thoughts after, or will you currently um, check on on a regular basis, like uh, uh, on the same level? I mean, my book is, is, it tries to be original, but it is also very much based on many of the ideas and thoughts and research of others, a list that's too long to mention. I mean, Anyone working in this field, I think, is indebted to Larry Lessig and his, his work on code as law in the, in the early noughties and late nineties. That's affected me a lot. I think everyone is familiar with and indebted to Shoshana Zuboff and her concept of surveillance capitalism. I think there's a scholar at Georgetown called Julie E. Cohen, who's done a great job of, um, dissecting the kind of marketized origins of a lot of our problems. But, you know, the biggest influences on my work are Republican thinkers, old and new, from Cicero in the Roman Republic to the framers of the American Republic um, and the uh, revolutionaries of um, Republican England, like John Milton. They are people whose views on how we should treat power have affected me profoundly. And what I've tried to do is transplant some of their ideas from the realm of high politics, kings and conquerors, to the realm of digital technology. If the average person wanted to affect some of the description provided in the book, who are the kinds of people they would go toward? Who could they reach for that uh, affects these kind of changes? Well, uh, one of the slightly dispiriting, but kind of, I think important messages of the book is that there is only so much we can do by ourselves as individuals. It's a bit like in a workplace, you know, where say workers are, are, are working under conditions that are sub optimal. One worker what can they do? You know, they can quit their job. No one's going to care. Someone else will take it in their place. They can complain to management, but they risk getting fired. Hence why you develop things like trade unions where you have collective solidarity, right? So everyone joins together and presents grievances collectively. Um, that is the essence of political organization from the bottom up. And I think the same is going to be true in digital technology. There have been, in my view, too many books too many s solutions which say, you know, here's how to make yourself safer on the internet. Here's what you should be doing with your personal data, etc. 
It transfers too much responsibility onto individuals. In no other area of life are we expected to check and agree for ourselves the terms on which we're consenting to our relationship with power. You know, when we walk into a building, we're not expected ourselves to check the architectural blueprints and consent to them. We're entitled to rely on the fact that they are certified, that the person who built it was a certified, qualified person. The same should be true with powerful digital technologies. And that is fundamentally something that can only be delivered politically through collective action, not through individual action. So I encourage everyone to read and get engaged, uh, but also to recognize that, you know, the burden shouldn't fall on individual shoulders alone. It can't. And in many ways, the regulatory system that we have places too much onus on individuals. You know, the idea that you click, I agree, or I disagree to things that you haven't read and couldn't possibly understand is a good example of that. It's a nonsense. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't rebalance power between you and tech firms. It simply gives them more by making you agree to stuff that you don't even understand. So I want to move away from the highly individualized conception of our relationship with technology towards a more collective one. I like the theme there. Jamie, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode, discussing a bit from your book, The Digital Republic, and presenting some themes in relation to it that we can take away for our, our understanding. Thank you, Armin. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. And we are out.